Good morning, everyone. All right. Just started recording on my phone, and it told me where I was, which is a little creepy, but I guess it does that now. Um, it's great to be with you guys this morning. Um, so I have a question for the kids to start off with. Um, and Ford, actually, if you could join me for this. Um, just need to do a little compare and contrasting here in terms of our height differences. Um, so, kids, here's my question. If we were going to play a basketball game and we had two captains, myself and Ford, who, whose team would you rather be on for basketball? Raise your hands if you want to be on my team. Raise your hand if you want to be on Ford's team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's the twist. I didn't, I didn't tell you for the, the two people who decided to raise their hands for me. If you're on my team, you have to play on your knees and with only one hand. All right. So again, who, who's for Ford? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. All right, great. So for today, we're talking about being uh, in Adam versus in Christ. And so I'm using the example here of teams and asking the question, whose team are you on? So as you're listening to the sermon, I want you to think about what is the difference between being on Adam's team versus Christ's team? And that's what we'll be talking about today in today's sermon. Um, We're continuing our Lenten series, focusing our attention on the cross of Christ. Ford has titled this series, The Cruciality of the Cross emphasizing the necessity of Jesus' death for our lives. But as we've seen, the cruciality of the cross does not erase the complexity of the cross. If you remember Ford's umbrella analogy from the first sermon, the multiple interlocking spokes, all of which work together to create the umbrella. So there's a complexity this. There are many different ways to discuss what is happening on the cross, way more than five sermons can cover. So we're only going to be touching on some of the major themes. I believe that there's a reason for this complexity, though, beyond just keeping theologians busy writing book after book after book. The complexity of the cross exists because of the complexity of our condition. The fracturing of the relationship between us and God that we see beginning in Genesis and stretching throughout all of Scripture leads to a complex problem that requires a complex solution. At the center of this solution is Jesus Christ, God stepping into human history to set everything right again. And when we consider all that is wrong with the world— all that needs to be set right, we shouldn't expect anything less than complete and holistic salvation. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Romans 5 and 6. We're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. And right away, I should acknowledge the difficulty of these passages, similar to last week. Paul is seeking here to explain that complexity of the cross and all the intricacies of what Jesus has accomplished and the impact it has on your life and mine. But so for our purposes today, we're going, to ha- we're going to be looking at a contrast that is presented in this passage. On the one hand, we have the trespass of Adam. 
which represents our condition before God. What we need to be saved from. And on the other hand, we have the free gift of Christ. What the cross and the resurrection accomplishes for us and how we fit into it. So on the one hand, the trespass of Adam. On the other, the free gift of Christ. So we're going to begin today with Adam. And to understand the trespass of Adam, what we have to do is we have to have a clear you have to be clear about the multiple ways that Scripture talks about sin. So far in this series, we've been focusing on what might be called our subjective responsible guilt. This is one category that theologians use to talk about the language of sin in the Bible. Here, in subjective responsible guilt, our actions in subjective engagement with the world is emphasized. And what the biblical authors make clear is that we are responsible and guilty for how our lives have strayed away from God's good creation and good intentions. And we must remember that in the midst of our fallen world, God created everything good. Our active and daily turning away from the ways of God is a rejection of goodness itself. And so we are responsible. And one of the results of our subjective responsible guilt is hurting, oppressing, and doing damage to others. And so justice is required. God sees the world's guilt and the world's need for justice, and he cares deeply about resolving these issues. This is what the first two sermons of our series focused on. What does God do with our guilt, and what does God do with justice? The answer to both of these was the same. He takes the guilt on himself. He satisfies justice for all. And so we can leave those last two sermons knowing that we are forgiven and that the heart of God is one that beats for justice. But scripture does not just talk about sin as our subjective responsible guilt. There's another way it refers to it. Sin isn't just about us doing bad things. And we see clearly here, see that clearly here in Romans 5. The trespass of Adam had a ripple effect on the world. It is an effect that we aren't just participants of in our own way, but we're also victims to. The trespass of Adam brought what might be called an alien force into the world. That's another theologian talking there, that term. Uh, Of course, here I don't mean little green men. I mean something that runs contrary to God's creation, that has power and influence on our culture, on ourselves, on creation itself. Look with me at Romans 5, verses 12 through 14, where I think this is shown. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here, notice sin isn't so much as a verb, something that we do. Sin is a noun. And the sign of its presence with us is death. This alien force, this power that exists in the world is the power of sin and death. Notice the active language in this passage. Death is reigning. 
We need to recognize that this isn't just a spiritual condition. It's a physical one. Death reigns over our bodies. Later in chapter six, it's our body of sin that is brought to nothing. There is an embodied reality to the, the power of sin. We carry it in our physical and our psychological makeup. And again, this isn't how it was meant to be. Our bodies were created good. Sin is an alien force to that good creation, and it holds sway over us. I hesitate to make this comparison, but uh, it's too simple to, to avoid. Over this past year, we've experienced a virus that has upended our lives. This virus is something outside of us that holds sway. It's given us anxiety, doubt, fear, sickness. It's changed how we've lived and, and gathered together, and it's cost the world an untold number of lives. Salvation from an alien force like a virus looks different than salvation from something like guilt. And so the cross can't just deal with our guilt. It has to save us from our condition. It has to free us from an enemy. It has to transform us and take us on our own exodus. It has to represent God's victory over all that would oppose him, not by strength of arms, but by the strength of his faithfulness to his people. The thorn and the briar mentioned in the book of Isaiah need to give way to the cypress and the myrtle. We must be washed, in our, like in our gospel reading, so that we can have a part or a share in Jesus. So what Romans 5 makes clear is that sin, as an alien force, entered the world through Adam, and all have fallen in with him. All of us are participants in Adam. We are all under his yoke. We are all in his fraternity. He is the captain of our team. So we are victims of Adam's trespass as well as participants with it, even as we continue to sin and continue to experience the power of death in the world. So just as an aside here, I think this should change the way we think and talk about sin. In our culture now, our neighbors aren't super concerned about sin if they ever were. I think this has led some Christians to double down on the sin language, to lean more towards fire and brimstone, to use the doctrine of sin as a sort of weapon. But a truly biblical perspective on sin sees all of us as perpetrators, guilty before God. And it sees all of us as victims of a hostile and degrading power that is present in the world. So we should never use the doctrine of sin as a club to attack our neighbors. Instead, it should humble us. Sin is the great equalizer. We all come to Jesus for forgiveness, and we all come to Jesus to save us from Adam's yoke. Every one of us is unable to save ourselves. We're trapped within the trespass. And for those who seek to be better than others on the basis of class or intelligence or education or wealth or even good old-fashioned American morals, God says the same thing. All of us have sinned. And for the Christians who look down on the worldly neighbors and friends saying with the Pharisee, God, thank you for not making me like them, God says the same thing. All are trapped within the trespass. But the free gift is not like the trespass. This isn't how the story ends. Adam is merely a type 
of the one who is to come. As we are participants in Adam, we have been given the grace to be participants in Christ. The free gift is not like the trespass. Look with me at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The reign of death that we are subject to in Adam is put to an end in the death of Jesus. How? Because through faith, we are participants in Christ's death and resurrection. In participating in his death, the hostile force of sin in us is put to death. And in his subsequent resurrection, we are given a new life free from the power of sin. And so through faith, we leave our participation with Adam behind and we're able to cling to Christ. And there a spiritual surgery is completed. The trespass of Adam is disarmed and Christ is enthroned on our hearts. Look with me again at chapter six, verses, verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Brought to nothing is a little bit of a passive translation here. Paul's Greek seems to have packed a little more punch for the original reader. Uh, Other translations say things like abolish, wipe out, invalidate, make powerless, destroy. The end result is that sin no longer has dominion over us. It has truly died with Christ and carries no real power anymore. When Christ died on the cross, he put to death the power of sin. He dealt a decisive blow as part of God's conspiracy to return creation to himself by dismantling the hostile alien force that entered the world because of Adam's sin. And this is a beautiful truth. But it leads us, at least leads me, to immediately question, how do we live now as though we are no longer enslaved to the trespass of Adam? What do we do with the sin that still so easily entangles us? That's the reality that I at least live in. Even in the midst of knowing that the power has been defeated, I still struggle with sin. And so we must recognize that though the victory has been assured, there are still skirmishes in the world. There are days when I can honestly say that parts of my heart are not fully submitted to God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is still desirable to the eyes. So while the victory is won, we find that we, we still must engage sin at times as a hostile alien force in the world and in our own lives. So I have three practical ideas about how to do this in light of Romans 5 and 6. One, Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to Jesus. From the perspective of Romans 5, this means that we should readily consider that sin has no real power over us. The power of sin is often seen in reactions like shame, fear, concealing, avoidance. Think about Adam and Eve tying fig leaves together and hiding from God after the fall. Because through faith we participate in Christ's death, we no longer need to hide from sin, from God, from other people. It has no power, no sting, no shame 
that can reach us in Christ. And this should fundamentally change how we engage with sin in our lives. We are invited to confess. We are invited to be open with other people. It means that we can gaze at the mess in our lives with compassion and bring it all before God. It means that the basic work of sanctification is not dependent on us pulling up all of our own life's weeds ourselves, but allowing God to step into our mess, to be with us in the midst of it, and for him to pull up each weed one by one. So confess with openness, stand without shame, Christ has died for you. Second, we should recognize that the source of our life comes from Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are now alive in Christ. The devotional activities of the Christian life, the ones that all of us, I'm sure, struggle with from time to time, like scripture reading and consistent prayer, these are merely avenues to help us look to Jesus. They transform us over time because Jesus uses them to transform us, not because we are rewarded for good deeds. So while we are focusing on the cross during Lent, we shouldn't neglect the resurrection. The only reason the cross has any power at all is that Jesus rose again three days later. It is in the resurrection that we are invited into a new life, one that is with God instead of opposed to God. So when we look to the cross, we should remember that the wounds Jesus received, he still bears on his body, but they are renewed and they are healed and he is whole. And that is our future as well. Jesus is where our life now resides. And number three, and finally, it should change the way we engage others. Our Christian brothers and sisters, our unbelieving neighbors, The shadow of the cross should stand above all our conversations, reminding us that we are all victims and all perpetrators, but through Christ, we can find new life. We should model that in very specific ways. One way we should model that is the end of hostility. If Christ bears the power of sin on his shoulders, what grudge can we hold against others? With the power of evil disarmed, Our relations with others can move towards love and grace, and we can consistently send any grudge, any problem, any difficulty back to the cross of Christ. So as an example of this power, I want to give you a little bit of the history of the Kenyan benediction we've been doing during the Lenten season. This is one of my favorite um, benedictions in the Anglican uh, liturgy, and and part of that is because of its history. So... Um, as you remember, the, the benediction is all our problems, all our difficulties, all the devil's works are sent to the cross of Christ. This benediction is believed to have its roots as a traditional curse litany by a nomadic ethnic group called the Turkana. And the Turkana would push their arms westward, westward and would send all their problems and difficulties and works of evil towards an enemy nomadic ethnic group called the Karamajan living in what is now Uganda. But when some from the Turkana people became Christians, they didn't think this was the best way to love their enemies. And so they began to send their problems, difficulties, and works of evil toward the setting sun, which, as you know, is still westward, but baby steps, right? (laughs) But during the formation of a Kenyan liturgy for the Anglican Church at the Provincial Liturgical Conference, a further revision was called for mostly because people living in the western parts of Kenya felt a little weird about all these problems being sent in their direction. 
So for inspiration, they chose Galatians 3, uh, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. They realized that this curse language should be sent to the cross. The only power, only place where the power of sin and our subjective guilt are dealt with. The hostility that existed between these groups was now extinguished in the light of Christ's accomplishment on the cross. And this is what the cross can ultimately do for us as well, transforming our curses into blessings. Through faith, Christ brings to death all that is within us, all that is within us that is opposed to God and life. The trespass of Adam carries no more power. Instead, we can live in the power of Jesus, confessing our sins and longing for the day when the assured victory is fully realized. And so to end, I want to draw your attention to the words from the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And so I'm going to read it, and then we'll enter into a time of resting in the word. I just want to encourage you to use this short time and this week to think on the bliss of this glorious thought, that your sin, not just the subjective guilt, but the power it has over you, has been nailed to the cross. So here's the verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen.